We all have been called by God to do something um, for the kingdom of God, and we all have a role to play. And the relevance of that, or the reason why that is kind of a distinction between maybe what's normal, is when I was growing up in, in church world, and I had kind of an off-and-on church experience, that is to say, we weren't the every Sunday group. We were the, you know, every Sunday for about two months, and then no Sundays for about six months, and then every Sunday for, you know, a, a month or so. Kind of back and forth. But my perception was, the people who did something for God were the people who were paid and the people who had a position. That if you were paid, if you were on church staff, whether it was the church secretary, whether it was the pastor, it was the worship leader, or you had a position that maybe you were an elder or a deacon or you were part of the board, those were the people who were really meaningful and really important and actually did the work that God had called the people of God to do here on planet Earth. And what the reality is, as you read the scripture is, is God has called each one of us. In fact, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 is our theme for this entire series, where he says that I am building you as living stones into a spiritual house. In other words, each person is a stone. Each person has equal value. Each person, in the same way, is being used by God as positioned specifically by God. And I am building you into a spiritual house to give glory to my name, or as he would say, to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifice. And so the idea here is that each one of us has a role to play. And what we're talking about over the next two weeks is specifically within that idea. What is God calling? What is your job? What is your position? That if you have a stone, if you are a stone, if God is in fact using you, then what is he calling you to do? Now, for us as a church, just for clarity, the next two weeks we are going to talk about the absolute foundational building blocks for us as a church. The foundational building blocks that we feel called to as a church, and we feel like everyone who calls themselves a church member here, and frankly, a church member anywhere, or a Christian anywhere, or a Jesus follower anywhere, ought to have and ought to be absolutely central to the core of your and my life. Now, we're going to be reading this morning um, from a passage that you're probably mostly familiar with. Um, it's going to be in the book of Luke. And whether you grew up in a church or you grew up outside of a church, you've probably heard of this. It's the, it's the story of, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, again, if you're in the church world, you've heard this story, you've heard this parable about a hundred times before and about a hundred different pastors have talked about it. If you're not from the church world, if you're you know, here and you're just investigating and trying to figure out this whole Jesus, God, Bible thing, maybe for the first time, then you've probably heard of someone saying, you should be a good Samaritan. And the idea is you help people, you love people, you add benefit, you serve, you do good for other people. Now, what we're going to experience as we, as we read through this is there's a lot of complexity when it comes to that. Because each one of us almost intuitively, because of our culture, and not every culture is like this, by the way, but because of the culture, especially in America, the idea of helping someone is a sought after and it's kind of an elevated idea that you ought to help people. It is to your personal benefit as well as their benefit to be a good person and do good things for people. But as Jesus starts to unpack this parable and talk about with this teacher that he's talking to, there's some things that I think bring clarity to some questions that we have about what does it mean and what does it look like and frankly, how far do you go in being a good person? So let's open the, the, uh, Luke chapter 10 if you've got your Bible. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke, who, by the way, is a historian, is writing this account because he probably heard it from Peter, Peter who followed Jesus very closely, and Luke has spent a lot of time with Peter, and so Luke's recounting a lot of the teachings that Peter and a lot of other people taught. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it's a parable, or it's the beginning of the story that would lead to a parable. And behold, a lawyer, chapter 10, verse 25, stood up to put him to the test. Now, this is like a classic lawyer thing. I don't know if you have you know, a lot of experience with lawyers, but only a lawyer would try to test Jesus. You know, it's like son of God. Well, I'm a lawyer. Okay, well, cool. So, so you know, a lawyer looks up and he says, okay, I'm going to test this guy who claims to be the son of God, and here's what my test is going to be. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, being Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read? In other words, come on. What they knew and what the, the, the lawyer meant, for, especially for them, isn't what just one that he practiced the law in a sense of, 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 a, of a judge type of way. He was almost always, and almost all lawyers were, were, were lawyers. They were experts in the law of God. In other words, this guy was extraordinarily familiar with the Bible. This guy had all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of wisdom, was incredibly well read about what the scriptures actually said. And so Jesus looks at him and says, come on, you know what the Bible says. You're a lawyer, right? I mean, lawyers know everything. So what do you read? What do you think? Tell me in your own words. And so the lawyer basically nails the question. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus, this is an easy question. In fact, everybody knows the answer to this question, and especially in our culture. Almost everybody has heard this idea. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. So he says, Jesus, come on. We all know the answer to this question. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. It's real simple. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Which normally we would think, okay, that's the end of the conversation. That was a very dull teaching moment, you know? It's kind of like there's no in that revelation like, oh my gosh, I ought to be a good person and help people. I ought to love God. And what's interesting is the conversation takes a turn. And the reason I think the conversation takes a turn is because there's something missing. There's something missing that when the lawyer knew the answer to this, he understood the information but there was a lack of how that information translated to application. He knew, I ought to love God and I ought to love people. And the love God, if we're being honest, is, is, is pretty clear. Like, I love God with my heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me have a deep and abiding love and passion for God. But when it comes to loving people, I don't know if you know this, but people are weird. And it gets messy. You know, it's like, okay, so I'm going to love people. But how far do I take this loving people idea? And which people do I love? Because there's some people that I like to love, and there's some people that are very difficult to love. In fact, I have lots of aunts and uncles and in-laws that are incredibly difficult to love. Not, of course, my in-laws, this is, you know, if you're listening on the podcast, you know, but just in-laws in general. You know, I know people, I have friends, I like all my friends, but there's one person in every friend group that's incredibly difficult to love. And the classic, if you don't have a friend in that friend group, you are the friend in that friend group. And everyone thinks that you're difficult to love. We all have people that we would look at, and we all have people outside of our friend groups that you think about loving you think about helping and the question is always how far how far do you go with this to what extent do you take this and so the, the, the lawyer asking this question in other words i understand i understand what the information is but let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the application of loving people but he desiring to justify himself said to jesus and who is my neighbor in other words i understand this Jesus. I understand that I'm supposed to love people. I, I, I get that. But how far? 
do I take this? Because when it comes to people, again, people are difficult, and problems are intricate, and there's almost always levels and layers. And we've all had this experience where sometimes you try to love someone, and it seems like the more that you love them, the more they expect to be loved. And sometimes it seems like the more that you love them, the more that you try to help them, the worse and worse and worse that they get. And so you kind of are caught in this thought process. Do I help them? Do I not help them? You see somebody on the side of the road who perhaps needs help. And you look and you say, man, I, wanna, I would like to help this person. But how do I know if it's actually helping this person? How do I know if I, the money I give to the guy on the side of the, re- the road is actually going to help them, or are they going to go buy something, are they going to go purchase something? And then there's the whole moral conundrum inside of that. Should I go help them? Am I only called to do what I'm called to do, and what they do that is up to them? Or at the same time, how do I act responsibly in light of that? Because half of us thinks, you know, man, I should just do everything for everybody and help in any way possible, and what happens with them is completely up to them. And the other half of us would think in more of a sense of, we would claim it as wisdom. One half would be loving, the other half would be wisdom. We would say, well, hey, I know the Bible says to give to anyone who asks, regardless of what they what they ask for you know basically give to anybody who asks but let me let's be honest if i have a kid who grows up to be an addict let's just say i have a dick who's just incredibly addicted to whatever narcotic there is and he consistently comes to me and says dad can i have 20 bucks dad can i have 20 bucks dad can i have 20 bucks and i know that he's going to spend it on that i am unloving as a father if i enable my son to feed into that addiction and that's a very very stark right and wrong But in the realm of people, it gets incredibly complex. And we love to love the people who are easy to love, who are responsive to our love. But when it gets outside of that, the people who we perhaps deem don't deserve our love, the people who it gets, you know, just incredibly messy with, the relative that you have that no matter how much you give and give and give, they take and they take and they take and they take and they take. And And you don't know when it stops. You don't know when you, uh, is, is the line. You don't know what are the relational dynamics that you ought to continue to love or not love. So let's be honest. Most of us are either irresponsible with how much we love and we give without any sense of wisdom, or many of us don't love nearly as much as we ought to. And for a lot of us, we're somewhere in the middle. And we all, in different ways, can be like this lawyer. Because on the other side of it, we can all justify to ourselves all the loving things that we've done for people say, man, I've helped people, I've loved people, I've given to people, I am a loving person. No doubt like this lawyer could have done. He's sitting there saying, man, so what's the line? How do I make sense of all this great? There's so many people to help, there's so many people to love, there's so much need out there. And I know what the Bible says, and I know what, you know, what Philippians 2 to, you know, consider others better than yourself that do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, which I was just thinking, by the way, this week is kind of a funny thing because we all want to consider other better than ourselves and maybe like in a church sense, like put people's need above ours unless it comes to electricity. And then it's like, God, I know there's 100,000 without power. I would love to be in that 2,000, you know? And not even because I want power. It's like for my wife and my kids. And I want to help other people and give them food. But right, right, right. I want AC. And the reality is, is oftentimes we're in the same position as the lawyer, whether we agree to it or not, whether we understand it or not, or whether we, whether we see ourselves in that position, which is basically to say, there is a lot of gray when it comes to loving people. There's a lot of boundaries that are difficult to define. And every situation's different, and every circumstance is different. 
What I hope for us this morning is that as we look at the parable of what Jesus explains, we become a more loving congregation because we more accurately understand the meaning of the parable and the clarity in the gray of the parable of the good Samaritan. So this is how the story goes, as many of you are familiar with. A man, Jesus said, after the guy says, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. This is about a 17-mile journey. Parts of this you know, particular path are pretty uh, notorious for being dangerous places, so this wasn't an uncommon thought. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. So interesting scene. Guy sitting there lying you know, naked on the side of the road, just beat, bloody, all this kind of stuff, and just laying there. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road. Now, by the way, priests in their day, this is probably you know, self-explanatory, but priests in their day were the top of the religious kind of stratosphere. They were on the totem pole of religiousness. They were the Levites, who were the people that were all in charge of the temple. On top of the Levites, or more what would be seen culturally as spiritual than the Levites, were the priests. And so the priest sees him, and when he saw him, pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite... When he came to the place, saw him, and passed by on the other side. And commentators will look into this and say, yeah, and there's plenty of reasons why. That perhaps it was because they didn't know him. Perhaps it was because he was so dirty. For many people, they would look at that and say, the reason why is because they were probably headed to Jerusalem. As they were headed to Jerusalem, that was the place that was the temple. And if you touch somebody who was dead, if you touch somebody who had all those open sores, then you would be unclean for X amount of days. And so it was more of just like a, a functional choice than it was anything else. But for some reason, whatever reason, they saw this guy and decided, we're not going to help. Who knows the gray? Who knows the boundary? Who knows the reasoning? Who knows the logic why? All we know is that they didn't stop. And then, a Samaritan, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, it's hard for us to understand because we don't live in their culture and their day and their context. It's hard for us to understand how big of a cultural divide there were between Jews and Samaritans. This is like in the height of the civil rights movement, in the height of the, um, of, of, of the, the segregation and all the things that were happening in America. This is like Jesus talking to a bunch from one side of the aisle and saying, this is like if, you're, you know, if, if you were in the segregation and there was just this complete juxtaposition, this complete you know, uh, conflict and, 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 and tension between these two uh, groups to say, hey, the person from the other group is the hero of this story. This is like Jesus coming on Sunday morning, saying, let me give you a parable. And by the way, someone who is, who is Islamic is the hero of this story today. By the way, someone who is Jewish is the hero. By the way, someone who is Buddhist. By the way, someone who is Hindu, not a Christian, not the pastor, not the worship leader, not the church staff member. Let me give you the hero of the story. But the hero of the story is the least likely hero that you can imagine. Culturally, it was almost inexplicable. I mean, they probably almost stopped listening, as Jesus said. And then, a Samaritan stopped. And he went and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal. Now, I just think that that's a funny kind of cultural difference between us and them. I can imagine, like, we're driving down Monroe Street. Somebody just got, like, you know, beat up, mugged. They're lying, like, naked on the side of the road, just, like, you know, jacked up, bloody, all stuff. I'm like, Lindsay, you know, come here. 
let's pour oil and wine. We just went to Costco, you know, and just started like, dousing some, you know, whatever your wine of choice is, which I know none of you drink wine because you're all so incredibly holy. And anyways, so, you know, you start, you know, olive oil and some Kindle Jackson or olive oil and some two-buck chuck. You know what I mean? You're just like dousing this guy. And he's like, what are you doing? But for them, they had this kind of restorative property. So he pours oil, pours wine, bounds him up, puts puts him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In other words, he stops and says, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of this guy, I'm going I'm to bind him up, I'm going I'm to help him out, and I'm going to take him to the inn where he can be completely restored. And by the way, innkeeper, there is, no, there's no, there is no limit to this. There is no, once it gets to this point, kick him out. I want you to do whatever it takes to help this guy. I want you whatever it takes to restore this guy. I want you to spend, let him stay a week, that's fine, two weeks, that's fine, six months, that's fine. I'm going to come back by, and whatever the expense was, I want you to know, I want this person, who though they don't deserve it, to be completely restored, and in their complete restoration, I will pay whatever it takes to restore that person. And then he talks to the lawyer again. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, verse 37, it's almost like he didn't even want to say the Samaritan because it's like he couldn't even bring himself to admit that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. He says this, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Let me, let me tell you the problem with this story that Jesus told. The problem is, is we hear this, and truthfully, it just complicates it even more. Because you hear that, and it's like, man, I don't even know if that type of generosity is possible. I mean, to, to just operate with the confines of what this story is communicating. That this guy who was a Samaritan who had no reason to stop, stopped. And not only stopped, but he helped to help bring this person back to full restoration, regardless of the personal cost to him. I mean, that just seems like it's a complete open window to be taken advantage of. So I should just give and give and give and give and give. Well, I don't really even, first off, have that much to give. But if I gave everything I have, I don't know that it would fully restore that person. And I mean, come on, I'm going to get taken advantage of. And there's so many nuances and so many issues. Whether it's a monetary sense or a relational sense. Let's be honest. Sometimes you give to somebody and it's not in a sense of I gave you food. It's that I was there for you when you were hurting. You got beaten. You got bruised. You got wrecked emotionally. And I am there for you as a friend, as a family member. And it seems like the more that you're there, the more that you just get drained and drained and drained until there's nothing left. And this idea is fantastic in principle but almost creates more gray in application. And here's why I think that does. Because I think that when we get to the point, I think when we get to the point where we look at this story and we try to read into it and say, okay, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for my life? How do I act as the good Samaritan? Here's what I think the problem is. If you've ever asked that question, then perhaps there's something about this story that we don't understand. And maybe the first realization is to realize that I am not, in fact, 
the good Samaritan. Maybe the beginning of realizing how this looks in application is to realize I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy who rides in on the horse who has unlimited resources and unlimited access. I am the guy who was on the side of the road that God saw me in my sin. God saw me in my brokenness. God saw me when I was without hope. God saw me that I had rebelled against Him. God saw me in my brokenness, in my sinfulness, in my rebellion against Him. God saw me in that season of life or in the multiple seasons of life when the reality of my life is that I had turned away from Him. I knew the good I ought to have done and I intentionally didn't do it. I knew what God had called me to do. I knew the life that God had called me to live. And maybe in fact, you didn't grow up in church and you knew maybe it wasn't because God called you to but your parents told you to and your grandparents told you to and you heard that the Bible said. And we look at that season of our life And the reality is, in this story, Jesus is the good Samaritan, and we are the people who are bloody and on the side of the road. And God, in his generosity, stopped. Though he had no reason to. There was not something good inside of the person on the side of the road that that he saw the person on the side of the road and thought, you know what? That person has done so much for me that I'm going to stop for them. It was out of the goodness of the heart of the good Samaritan, out of the Samaritan person that he stopped in the same way. There is nothing so lovable inside of us that we deserve God's love for us, but God decided to freely stop anyway. It's the beauty, it's the audacity, it's the crazy part of the gospel that is absolutely inexplicable. Why are we lovable to God? I have absolutely no clue. Because there is nothing inside of me that God should send his one and only son for me. There's nothing that I've done for God that God should stop for me. Because I've rebelled. I've sinned. In fact, come on. If you're in here and you're a Christian, you know this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell you why. Because perhaps... You've spent your entire life interacting with Christians who pretended like they were better than you because they pretended like they were sinless. The reality is, is we as Christians come to the realization that I am terribly sinful. Yet, I have a God. There is a God who saw me in my sinfulness, in my rebellion, in my filth. And for no cultural reason, for no deserved reason, said, I'm going to stop. And I am going to pay whatever price it takes to bring that person, to bring Ben to full restoration, even if it costs me my very own son. That God so loved us. God so loved us. In fact, Romans would say this way, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. That God wanted to show the world, I so deeply love you, that while we were still sinners, while we were still in our sin, before we had decided that, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, before we had come to that revelation, before we had made any kind or had any kind of enlightenment, that Christ died for us. And I am not the good Samaritan. I am the guy on the side of the road who Jesus brought to restoration. And here's why that is so absolutely critical. 
Because what I do as a Christian is not, absolutely not, a decision that I am going to be a good Samaritan. What I do as a Christian is a response to what God's done for me. The reason why I stop to help people is not because I'm a good person and I ought to stop to help people. It's because I have a God who stopped and helped me, and so I feel compelled to stop and help other people. The reason why I love other people is not because I'm a good person and I feel like I ought to love people. It's because I have been so deeply impacted by the love of God in my life that I can't help but stop and to love people. The reason that I serve people is not because I ought to serve people and I'm a good person because I serve people. It's because I understand that I have been so deeply served when God's in His one and only son into the world to die for me that I could have a new life that I could have restoration that I could be reconciled with him that I could have community with God himself God almighty pure perfect holy God and that it cost me nothing that he paid the punishment that he took care of it that he flipped the bill that it drives me to love other people It drives me to help other people. It drives me to serve other people. Here's the way it makes sense to me, just in a personal sense. This is the phrase that kind of has been going through my mind the last couple days that just to me just brings so much clarity. It's repetitive, but it's clear. Loved people, love people. Served people, serve people. Loved people, Love people. When you realize how deeply you have been loved by your Heavenly Father, it drives a love for other people. When you realize how much your Heavenly Father has served you, it drives service for other people. And by the way, when you realize how He loved you, when you realize how He served you, it makes clear, it brings clarity in all the gray. Because there were times where Jesus would talk to his disciples and he would say incredibly loving things. He would look at the crowd and say, man, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. And here was times when he would look at his disciples and say, are you still so dumb? There are times where he would look at it appropriately and not just say anything, everything, whenever, but he would use wisdom. Because sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to stand there and listen. And sometimes the most loving thing we we can do is to have an incredibly confrontational conversation and speak truth. That Jesus was full of, as John chapter 1, as many of us read this last week, Jesus was full of both grace, love, and truth. He was the fullness of both. Many of us are one or the other when it comes to loving people. You either want to love people by having confrontation after confrontation and confrontation. Everybody calls you a jerk. It's whatever. Or we're the soft, you know, we just, you know, love, 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 love. Take advantage, take advantage, take advantage. Jesus was both. And understanding God's love for us, God's love for us in, in light of and in spite of the impending judgment and the impending damnation that we should have gotten as a consequence of our sin and how he dealt with us brings clarity brings responsibility, and frankly, drives us to love other people. There's a story that I used to tell um, way back in the day. In fact, if you've been around, uh, if you were in youth ministry when I did this, you probably have heard the story probably half a dozen times. When I was about 10 years old, um, I played baseball, and uh, if you were a 10-year-old baseball player, you know that, like, especially if you were a 10-year-old and like your life revolved around sports, you know that everything rode and died on how you, well you did and how well your team, how good your team was. Um, this was before, by the way, we hit Little League. I think it was Adam League or Junior. I, I don't remember what it was. Cub League, something like that. Anyways, 10 years old, we were the Cubs. We were, we were pretty legit. In fact, we were um, kind of the number one team, or at least we thought we were, because by the way, if, if, I don't know if you remember this about yourself, but when you're 10 years old, you knew who was the best at everything, 
If you ask a 10-year-old right now who's the fastest person in their class, they can tell you without blinking. You know what I mean? Jimmy is. Luann is. I don't, I don't think actually there's any Luanns who are that fast. But, you know, this person is. You know, this, is, this person is the fastest person. I mean, you just know intuitively as a 10-year-old who's the best reader, who's the fastest, who's the smartest. I mean, you just, you just know that stuff. So, um, ten, about 10 years old, and we were playing uh, Adam League Cub League baseball, and... Um, it was getting towards the end of the season, and our team was like one of the top two, and this other team was one of the top two, and we were both kind of, the everybody knew in our league at Viridian Park, we were the top two teams that there were around. Um, and it came down to the last game of the season, we were playing each other. And now, you don't really have a tournament because everybody's a winner, everybody gets a participation trophy, another sermon, another day. But we knew that we were going to the end of this thing, and we were the top two teams. And this was like understood that whoever wins this game is going to be the national champions, that's what you kind of felt like. So... We're going, start the game. Um, by the way, your boy was pitching, not a big deal. We'll talk about it later. Um, but, you know, we're going in this game, and, and you know, we're kind of, you know, we're up, and then they're up, and then we're up. It's just back and forth the whole time, and they're, they're, they're pretty stinking good. Um, so we get to the last inning, and we are uh, going to be the last in the field, and so the, the thought is, man, okay, three outs, and, and we're good to go, which rarely, by the way, happens in, uh, in, in Little League baseball. So two outs happen. Bases are loaded. This is, by the way, not like a lie. This is like the, something that little kids live and die for. You're two outs, bases loaded, into the season, top two teams are playing. And I don't know if you know this, um, this kid, but there's a kid in, in every single like, grade that's like this. This is the kid that hit puberty about 15 years too early. And he's a solid stash at 10 years old, you know? He's walking up just like bowed up to the plate. He taps the plate and like, the ground shakes. You're like... Like, okay, you're going you're gonna to peak when you hit 11, by the way, little kid. But, you know, right now you run the world. And so, so this kid gets up, and he's a monster of a, of, a, of a 10-year-old. I think he was bigger than I am now. You know, he's just, you know, uh, not that I'm, anyways, I didn't, okay, cool. So 10-year-old, you know, little Hercules gets up to bat. And I remember, you know, kind of through the first pitch, it was a strike. I'm like, I got this sucker, you know. And, and we kind of, you know, threw some balls and strike. And so anyways, it ends up we got two strikes on this guy, bases loaded, last inning, Hercules at the bat. And, and I'm pitching, and I'm thinking, I'm about to end this kid's life. You know what I'm saying? Like, like because at 10 years old, this, like your life rides and dies on whether you win this baseball game or not. Like, you are either the hero or blackballed from your classroom the next day. And so... I'm sitting there, and I remember I threw a pitch, and it went right down the middle. I mean, this thing's just, you know, to me and my 19-year-old mind, it's like a 100-mile-an-hour fastball going right down the middle. And I remember Hercules, man, he just looks at it, and he just goes, ding, and it, that might not be a big deal to you. But when he hits the ball, and all of a sudden you hear that ding, and as a pitcher, you can see the ball start to take off. And, you're like, your life, you're just thinking, like, I'm dead. That's all you can think of is like, I am so totally gone. Like, there is no restoration for me in this process, especially because, you know this if you're a 10-year-old, no one catches fly balls at 10 years old, okay? You have like five outfielders, and their main purpose is to shag the ball. They grab the ball and hold it up and yell, time. That's all your function is as an outfielder, okay? So two outs, dude just cracks it. And I'm just sitting there like, my life is over. You know, as I'm just watching this thing go back, I'll never forget my good friend, David Micah, who, by the way, is, I think, I'm pretty sure he's a lobbyist. I know he works downtown at the Capitol, but I'm pretty sure he's a lobbyist. And my next dude was down my down the street neighbor, and he kind of drifts back a little bit, you know, kind of like a, an old school Ricky Henderson style. If any of you guys remember Ricky Henderson. Puts his glove up and just catches it. And we 
exploded. I mean, we're like, no! Like, so we're like running, dogpiling. We're going nuts because we just felt like we won the, you know, the, the, the World Series. And we're just, you know, we were so hyped. Because I remember sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And all of a sudden, he catches it. And we were so, I mean, he had like, it, this was like salvation for me as a 10-year-old. I could now go to Classic and I could eat in the lunchroom without being like ridiculed because David, you know, Micah just caught this fly ball. Well, we go to school the next day. We're playing basketball, and we were picking teams, and I was, you know, picking my side of the team, and somebody else was picking their side of the team, and, and we would always get there early and, and, and play and whatnot. I remember first pick, and first pick, if you know how this works, you pick the best joker that is out there. Um, well, David Micah was out there, and he was okay at basketball. He definitely wasn't the best. And I remember the morning after, I was still so thankful that he had caught that fly ball. When it came to basketball, I was like, you know what? I don't care if we lose by 100 on the basketball court today. David, you're my first pick. And here's why. As silly as that story is, I was so thankful and I was so grateful at how David, I felt like, had saved my 10-year-old life. That I willingly said, you know what? I'm absolutely going to pick you. That reception of what he had done, what I felt like he had done for me, just manifested itself in the application of doing something loving towards him in the exact same way on an infinitely bigger scale. When we realize the depravity of our sin, when we realize the depravity, how unsavable we are, how unlovable we are, how much we have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the unbelievable glory of God, and that God, for no good reason to us, sent His one and only Son to die for us, to be brutally murdered on the cross, to forgive us our sins, though we did not deserve it. It wells up inside of us a desire, a love, an appreciation, a thankfulness to do nothing nothing but love him back and as he would put it that love manifests itself in a love for other people that i would love the lord my god with all my heart soul mind and strength and the next step would be connected to it that i would love my neighbor as myself that i am so deeply impacted by the love of god in my life that it drives me to love other people. I'm so deeply impacted by the forgiveness of God in my life that I'm driven to forgive other people. I'm so deeply impacted by the service that God served me when he gave his one and only son to die for me that I serve other people. And I am driven, not obligated, not good personed into doing that. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story of our sinfulness and God's redemption in spite of our sinfulness, which compels us to do the same thing for other people which brings clarity that out of response of God's love for us, we love. Out of response of God's service to us, we serve. And as we read and as we understand how God served us and loved us, we love and serve other people. Through the difficult, through the draining, through understanding, through appropriate ways, through difficult conversations, through confrontational conversations. We love when we say yes sometimes, and we love when we say no sometimes. We love when we build up and build up and listen, and we love when we help and help and hold accountable and speak honesty and truth. That for many of us, the reason why we have a difficult time understanding how this plays out is because we have a difficult time translating the information that God so loved me that I love other people. 
Like God gave his son for me, and as a result to that, as a response to that, I love other people. So we'll finish with this last couple questions. So what's the area in your life? What are the areas in your life that you're unloving? What are the areas in your life where you know you ought to listen? You know you ought to be more generous. You know you ought to be more kind. What are the areas in your life where you know you ought to be more truthful? You know you ought to be more accountable. But yeah, you might be grace-filled, but you need to be more truth-filled. And not because you have to. Because you ought to be compelled to out of a realization of God's love for you. Because loved people love people. Serve people, serve people. Forgiven people, forgive people. And how much different, especially if you're not a Christian, how much different would this be? How much different would your family be? How much different would your work be? How much different would your friend groups be? How much different would your fraternity or sorority be? How much different would every area and avenue, every avenue, your team, whatever places that you are at in life, how much different would that be? If you loved with the passion fueled by God's love for you, there's a chance that we would actually do what Jesus said which is to go and do likewise. And there's a chance that this house, this spiritual house that God is building would be built in a way that just so incredibly and accurately reflects our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his very own life to us unlovable people. So I'm going to pray for you. That however that looks for you, because every situation is different, every relationship is different, every dynamic is different, that God would bring clarity through what he has done for you. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. God, in our unlovable state, you did the most lovable thing. That we were broken, that we were beaten, that we were sinful, rebellious. For many of us, in fact, for all of us, because of our decisions. We knew what we ought to have done and didn't do it and have sinned. When we are all equally guilty of falling short of your glory over and over and over again. But you saw us, didn't hold our sin against us. In fact, you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, God, you still sent your son, our Savior, Jesus, to die for us. that we would be saved through faith, through placing our faith, our hope, and trust in you, Jesus. And God, I pray for every person in here, myself included, oh my gosh, myself included, that you would just bring extraordinary clarity into our lives, how to love people, how to help people, how to serve people. What are the appropriate ways? What are the right conversations? What's the mixture of grace and truth? Because every relationship's different, every dynamic's different. But God, that you would bring clarity to us as we understand more deeply and more fully how you, God, loved us sinful people. That as we feel that love, as we understand that love, it will drive us to love 
other people. Because God, we know that loved people love people, serve people serve people, and forgiven people forgive people. So help us, help us, help us to every single day experience your love for us. And please let that do its full work to drive us to love other people. So that when people look at each one of us as individuals, they would see us and see you through us as we do what you told us, which is to go and to do the same. God, I pray that you would transform our community, transform our, our church, as each of us as individuals experiences your love for us, and that drives us to love, to serve, to help, and to forgive. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.